which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Father, as we take into consideration this morning these statements from your word, we pray, Lord, that you would use them to feed your sheep. We come before you in Christ's name, and we ask you, Lord, to give us those covenant promises which are ours, whereby we may profit and grow in grace from the time that we spend together in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your truth. Lord, where there are hearts that are without a knowledge of the truth, we pray that you would open them to it. Where those hearts have been opened by your grace, we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with understanding. These things we pray for and give thanks for. In Jesus' name, amen. David Dixon is a Scottish Presbyterian minister and educator whose work has often been a blessing to me personally. His commentaries are full and and they're rich. And his work on the Epistle to the Hebrews, which I've used throughout this series, has really been very helpful to me. By the time King Charles II of England whose story we touched on in Sunday school this past summer, by the time he took the throne, David Dixon was, as one biographer says, well stricken in years and ripe for his glorious reward. As the end of his life in this world drew near, a fellow minister came to visit him and asked David Dixon how he was faring. And Dixon's answer was beautiful. He replied, I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad deeds and cast them through each other in a heap before the Lord and fled from both and betaken myself to the Lord Jesus Christ and in him I have sweet peace. Took all his good deeds, those that could be considered good, all his failures and shortcomings, threw them all together in one big heap and ran away. (laughs) Ran away from it all and fled to Jesus. And there he found peace. Every prudent Christian beloved does the same. All our works are either filthy rags or the gracious result of the grace of Christ working in us and through us. It's not us, but it's him. We throw the one down before him for covering under his blood and the other as a testimony to his steadfast love and his mercy toward sinners. He or she is a fool who boasts in anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to us and we to the world, as Paul says in Galatians 6.14. 
Now, last week, Mr. Brillhart introduced us to this 12th chapter of Hebrews. It is the natural, practical follow-up of the 11th chapter, which is the list of faithful men and women and the deeds which God worked in and by them through faith. You're told that all of these were sent before you to be a witness to you of how you ought to live and work by faith in your lives as Christians. That whole list in chapter 11 has been set before you to be an example to you, to show you how you ought to live and work by faith. It's Dixon who makes the sobering observation that if we're not patiently persevering in the course of Christianity as they have, we are actually abusing our knowledge of all these examples. And not only making poor use of them, but misusing them. Just pause for a moment and reflect on that. It is one thing to pride yourself in the knowledge that you have of Old and New Testament characters and their lives, their events, the events of their lives. But we're making ill use of that knowledge. If we can outline the life of Esther or tell the story of Ruth or talk about David or Daniel or trace the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul or reflect on the pivotal moments in the life of the Apostle Peter, but are not following in practical terms their example of faith and service to the Lord. We're misusing our knowledge of those things if we're not making application of it in our own walk and our own life before the Lord. That's why those stories are set before us. That's why they've been given to us. That's why they've been set down. To show us, to give us a witness, an example of what it is to live and die by faith. Paul says in Romans 15:4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. These examples, beloved, these witnesses, are set before you and me to engender humility in us, not pride, to bring us to a point of surrender and not to persistence in self-will, to bring us to dependence on the Lord and not to a place of self-reliance, to demonstrate what it means to live by faith for Christ and what it means to live not to self, not by sight, not by sense, but by faith. What it means not to be ruled by the flesh, but to be ruled by the word and the spirit of God. The story of David is related to you in the scriptures. It's intended in part, not wholly, but in part, to impact your marriage. It's there to impact that aspect of your life. 
It's intended to guide you in your parenting. To show you an example of poor parenting and what it leads to. And to show you what it means to live by grace in the world. When you begin to survey these witnesses, you soon see that their testimony touches on every sphere of life and all the circumstances of life under all sorts of conditions and in various cultures. As we learn of these witnesses, we find that we're in the throne room on some some occasions and we're in the home of the widow on others. We're on the sea. We're in the desert. We're on the mountaintop. We're in times of great prosperity and times of desperate poverty. Times of great triumph and times of tragic loss. We're with individuals, we're with couples, we're with families, we're with friends. And we are with enemies. All these stories show us what faith looks like in all these different contexts. And consider just how thick this cloud of witnesses is. We don't have a witness here and a witness there. But the history of the church, beloved, in every age is dense with examples of the art and the blessing of living by faith. Faith in God's redeeming grace and the tragedy of living without God in this world and the next. Calvin says, he that is the Holy Spirit says that we are so surrounded by this dense throng that wherever we turn our eyes, many examples of faith immediately meet us. So wherever we turn and we're looking for examples of faith, we'll find them, we'll see them, they're everywhere. This is a dense cloud of trust and confidence in him. We see plainly the joy and the blessing of a living faith in the lives of men, in the lives of women, in the lives of children. And we see the sorrow and emptiness of a life without it. We observe in these witnesses the skill, the strength, and the speed necessary to run well. All of which can only be had by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the Spirit of God at work in our hearts, in our lives. As verse 1 says then, Therefore, since you are surrounded by so great and dense, I'm amplifying the text here, a cloud of witnesses, examples, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us in our own time, in our own circumstances, run the race of faith and join the long line of witnesses, the dense cloud of witnesses. Now the next issue that's addressed here is the one of sinful entanglement. and Mr. Brillhart referenced that last week. The things that endanger our running with endurance or, or running well, the race that is before us. 
You know, when the Olympics were reinvented or revived in the late 1800s, a false narrative was part of that revival. The false storyline had to do with the picture of the noble ancient Greek athlete spurning all moral weakness and entering the race or the competition with a determination to win by personal skill and ability alone. The ancient athlete was held up as the champion of fairness, of honor, as the noble competitor above all else. That, beloved, I'm sorry to tell you, is a myth created by the Olympic Committee of the Victorian Age. It is not the reality of the times. As you entered the ancient Olympic Stadium, the way was lined with a row of pedestals. And it was impressive because every time the Olympics were held, there were more of these pedestals on the way in. And you might think that these pedestals must have supported statues Statues of sort of a hall of fame of athletes who had competed well and won great honors. Or they were statues to the coaches who had helped young men excel. Each of these statues that increased in number from Olympic to Olympic time had been raised by the fines, the penalties, and the surrendered prizes of those convicted of cheating, doping, bribing judges, and otherwise winning without being a champion of nobility. Those statues were there to remind the athletes as they went in, you cheat like these men did, and you're going to be buying one of these statues. That's what's going to happen. You're going to be contributing to the hall of infamy, not a thing. Some athletes would write curses on pieces of lead, and then they would go out to the track when nobody else was around, and they'd bury them in the lane that their competitor was going to be in, with the hopes that he would step on it when he was running, and the curse would hit him, and he'd fall, or something else would happen to him. Athletes would pay and accept bribes to lose a race, Potions would be used to enhance or cripple an athlete's performance. In short, by the days of the Apostle Paul, the system was deeply corrupted. The Emperor Nero prided himself. He fancied himself an Olympic champion chariot racer because in a race he had won. Because he paid everybody else to lose and pays the judges to make him the winner. But he fancied himself that and talked about his own Olympic accomplishments more than once. So when Paul speaks here of the sin that entangles, the people of the day had a clear image of what he meant. Engaging in any sinful practice or habit that would hinder oneself or anyone else in his or her race for Christ. Whatever that sinful thing might be, 
but it was all there to entangle, to corrupt, and to call men off from following Christ, and to cause others to stumble and to fail in their race. Let's consider David again, because he's so well known. His compromise and his sin in the matter of Bathsheba not only weakened him in his race, it caused others to stumble and some to fall. And the fact is that it still does. There are still those who use the example of David as an excuse for their own sin. And the same potential is there for every professing believer who dallies with adultery. Now that's a dramatic and it's a scandalous example. But you can take any area of life and wherever sin hinders the Christian in his or her walk of faith or race of faith, it has the same potential. The call here in Hebrews 12 is, let us consider these witnesses and where they ran their race by faith, let you and me be found doing the same for the glory of God. Whether you read it as running with patience or endurance, the meaning here is the same. Let us live by faith. Let us be found putting our faith and trust in the Lord and his word. And if one asks, well, what exactly does that mean? It's this, beloved. God's word is truth. God's word is truth. And that is only true, which harmonizes or agrees with his word. That is only true, which harmonizes or agrees with his word. So in order to run my race well, I must, by the grace of God, believe that word, believe that it's true, and live by that word, and not by my own will, or by the fancy of the world, or the lie or deception of Satan. When the world says that evil is good, I reject that. When the world says that good is evil, I reject that. And I run my race according to faith. So in the broad sense, for example, I believe this. It's in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What a simple statement. But that's the truth. And we live by that. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And we believe that. Our trust is in that. That our sins are forgiven, they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, if we say there's no such thing as sin, that's a lie. And the truth is not in us. And we believe that. If we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we believe that. That's why David Dixon took all his good works and all his sins and threw them all at the feet of Christ and fled to him. Because he believed that if he would confess his sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive him his sins and is Christ alone who cleanses from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, if we had more time, we could go on from here and see what the scripture says about so many things. The character of your worship, your behavior in the home, your behavior in the house of God, your behavior in the world, what it has to say about your speech, your thinking, what it has to say about the world itself, what it has to say about sin, what it has to say about all manner of things. But we need to move this morning to the chief witness as we wind down and we prepare to come together to this table. Notice what Hebrews says next in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The chief witness that you and I must have in our eye is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed the founder and the perfecter of your faith. In short, you and I would have no faith. You cannot have any life of faith without him. Those who try to make faith in God something that exists outside of Jesus Christ, they betray all their claims to faith in God because they don't believe what he says and they deny his word. In John chapter 5 and verse 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So you can't say, oh, I'm just one of those who believes in God. Yes, Jesus might be somebody, might be a good prophet, a good man, but there are other good men. But my faith is in God. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So there's that sense in which Christ may be referred to as the author of our faith. We don't have a life of faith without him. 
But essentially the meaning here is a little bit different. The meaning here is that in him, that is in Jesus, you have, beloved, the leading or the supreme example of living, living by faith in his example of perfect obedience and submission to the will of his Father. So when you look at this dense cloud of witnesses and you take in their unanimous testimony, then says the author of Hebrews, look away from that. Look away from that dense cloud and look to him. Look toward Christ, who is the leading witness to us all. And when you do so, what do you see? Well, you see the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It's John Calvin who points out a, a most interesting thing here. He says, it is possible that Jesus might have come into the world and lived a life that was perfectly pleasing to himself and filled with joy. He could have descended into the world in all his might and glory. He could have subdued all things to himself. He could have taken possession of the kingdoms of the world and ruled over them with a rod of iron. The Savior could have come and lived a life full of joy and without any suffering or any sorrow. But instead, he chose to, through, uh, though he was in the form of God, to not, uh, and didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, he chose to empty himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Beloved, this was the race set before the Savior. Now stop and think. Was there anything in this world Was there anything of this world that encouraged him in this race? That encouraged him to pursue this? Was there anything in this world that encouraged him to finish this race? And the answer, I think, can be summed up by these words from John in his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 10 He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He was denied the comforts of this world. Jesus himself said, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There was no comfortable home for him to go to. 
no property that he owned, no possessions that were his. He was emptied. He was tempted. He was tried. He was railed against. He was mocked. He was betrayed. And he was deserted by his friends. And he was, as the passage says in the end, crucified. All for the joy that emanated from what was promised through it all and by this. Through running and completing the race. Calvin says, he commends to us, that is the author of Hebrews, the patience of Christ on two accounts. Because he endured a most bitter death and because he despised the shame. He then mentions the glorious end of his death, that the faithful might know that all the evils which they may endure will end in their salvation and glory, provided they follow Christ. If the Son of God, whom it behooves all to adore, willingly underwent such severe conflicts, who of us should dare to refuse to submit to him to the same? You see, beloved, the text calls on you and me to consider him. That is, to to make a proportionate judgment between the chief example and ourselves. We shouldn't be shying away from our spiritual duties, whether we're talking about those duties at home or abroad. But as faith requires, we should be denying ourselves and living for Christ. That's the race that we're in. And he makes reference here to all the contradictions that were set before him. Anything contrary to the race. And to what end? What are all these contradictions? What are all all these things that, that were set before him? Temptations and trials of all kinds. Not just the, the, the bitter resistance of the Pharisees, but the reactions of his own apostles at times. When he's talking to them and teaching them and they're not hearing and they're not reacting and they're, they're not responding and they're coming up with ideas like should we call fire down from heaven and burn everybody up that doesn't agree with us? Should we do that, Lord? <laughs> That's one of their, their, their conclusions. All sorts of, all manner of contradictions against him. But of course the emphasis here is on the ones that are directed against him personally. And what is it that, that his example is to do for you. It is to prevent you from becoming weary in your own race, from becoming despondent, from giving up, from surrendering to temptation and to sin, to others. The fainting mind is the thing that leads us into these troubles. Keeping our eyes on Christ is the way to prevent it. You know, most are willing to suffer for what they know to be true. I think most people, to some extent or another, are willing to suffer to some degree for what they know to be true. But when everyone around you 
is calling into question whether what you know to be true is really true. When they are denigrating and mocking it, as well as suggesting that good is evil and evil is good, it becomes a weighty thing, doesn't it? Why won't you fall into step with the opinion of the world in regard to so many things? Why won't you fall in step with the world and just admit there's no such thing as sin? It's just something that was created by the church in order to repress people. Why don't you fall into step with that idea? Why don't you fall into step with the idea that there's really no definition of marriage? Why don't you fall in step with all of these things? Why don't you fall in step with the fact that abortion is a right that needs to be defended and protected? Why don't you fall into step with those things? What's the matter with you? What's wrong with you? And you have that constant chant going on. Now, when you're dealing with those things, the writer of Hebrews says, look to Christ. And you remember that they were denigrating him. And they were calling him a liar. And they were saying he was Beelzebub. You're the devil himself in what you're doing. And they were casting all that on him and throwing all that on him and mocking him on the cross and saying, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Come on down from there. Show us who you are. All those things were were thrown at him. But he endured by faith to the end as an example to you and me. The word of God is truth. Only that which harmonizes and conforms with that truth is true. And so we raise our families according to the instruction of God's word because that's truth. We treat one another as spouses according to the commandment of God's word because that's truth. And we believe it's true. And we believe it's the path of blessing. And we follow it for Christ's sake. And we may be mocked, we may be ridiculed, but we stand. But it can be a weighty thing. It's like being placed on the rack. The original translator is looking for some way to express this. Uh, Looked at the idea of suffering on the rack. In Revelation 2.3, Jesus says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And this passage is saying, this is what we want to be known about us by our Savior, that we're enduring patiently, that we're bearing up for his name's sake, and we have not grown weary. Dixon says, to be wearied in this case is to be so pressed and discouraged with the greatness or length of difficulties and trials as to draw back, to give over partially or totally from the profession of the gospel. And this I judge to be the frame of mind here cautioned against by the apostle, namely the want of life, vigor, and cheerfulness in profession 
tending to a relinquishing of it. It may not be the whole of the matter of your faith, but any part of it in which the trial of it weakens and wearies you, beloved, and tempts you to abandon your Christian course, you must set a watch against that and keep your eyes on Christ. We, keep, we do that by keeping him and his sufferings in mind. He endured contradictions so bitter, so severe, so cruel. Whatever the malicious wits of men or suggestions of Satan could invent or broach that was venomous and evil was cast on him. And yet he remained faithful to the end. And why? Out of love to you and me. And out of love to him. That's the course we're called to follow. These were the bitter oppositions of sinners, men and women who were not constrained in any way to regard their anger or their malice against him. This was all aggravated because it was leveled against him directly and personally. Yet he patiently endured them, and so should we. With a specific motive, by following examples, by deriving our power, from him. In 1 Peter, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The emblem before us this morning, or the table before us this morning, is the emblem of his finished race. We read in John 19, verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Beloved, let us eat and drink together as those who are committed to running well. Not in our own strength, but in his, until our race is finished saying as Paul did, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning knowing that you know the trials and the difficulties the temptations, the opposition that we face in our walk of faith. And we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us so that we might run well. Lord, we pray that we would have our eyes on the examples set before us so that we might know what is the way of danger and know what is the way of blessing. And we pray, Father, that we might always have before our eyes the Lord Jesus Christ as our chief example. 
that, Lord, we might not grow weary, that we might not be tempted to surrender, but, Lord, to fight on in our life and our stand for Christ, whether it's in the context of our homes or our church or the the world in which we live. May we, as we sit at Christ's table, be reminded of what it means to finish the race, knowing of all the blessings, all the joy that comes in the end. Bless us, Lord, in this way for your great namesake. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.